Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus, Season 27, Episode 7. Coming up on the show, we've got classified mystery metals, the healing power of the UFO goddess, and the anti-mind control trick the aliens don't want you to know. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. Oh, this is a continuation of that fantastic story that you were covering last week. And we're going to find out this group that knows how to trick the aliens. Is that correct? An easier intro would have been part two of the Chris Bledsoe story. Why didn't we take it away from you? (laughs) That would have been way easier just to say that. Because that's what it is. If you missed the last episode on Friday or if you've just signed up like in the year 2024 or something and you're listening randomly to this show, go back and listen to see Season 29, Episode 7, Contract with the Goddess. That's the first part of this story I will conclude on this episode. If we've got time, do you have anything in store? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny that you should mention the mystery medals because I've got some stories which we didn't end up getting into, but we've got Men in Black in Australia, weird sightings and encounters with implants that have been... There was one particular story that I've pulled up from the archives of a great Australian researcher uh, that was focusing on implants back in the 1990s. And one of the implants he pulled out seemed to have the same circuitry of, I think, a Swiss radio. <laughs> what is the circuitry of a Swiss radio? Suggesting- Was it any different to any other radio? Well, this kid had had incredible abduction experiences, but the implant that they pulled out was just a standard Swiss radio microchip, essentially. Oh, okay. But it leads into a greater conspiracy theory that there are my labs, as in military abductions, that are going on in Australia, which ties in with the men in black, mm. and that's how I got there. You'd think it would stand out like a Radio Shack-style <laughs> FM receiver in an, in an abductee. With a cord hanging out your nose. <laughs> it's got this lump on my back, and I don't, I don't know where it came from. It's just like a Radio Shack <laughs> Walkman. No, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, because it was a very, very tiny implant, and when it was analysed, it was the uh, the circuitry matched a certain European right. country. So if we get time, we'll, we'll go into that, but if not, we'll do it this week. We'll see how we go. I'm not sure how much time will have because this is a huge story and I really struggled to get even kind of halfway through on the last episode. Mm. But where we left it was essentially Chris had just had that encounter with the portal that appeared in the middle of the night in the forest and a spectral bull came out (laughs) that transformed into the UFO goddess who then gave him the Helen Keller headless, blindless, limbless (laughs) little fluff ball. That's right, yes. And that was supposedly something he had to look after. It represented humanity. But then the UFO goddess told him it was his mission to spread her message. And that there were forces in the world that were trying to paint the phenomenon as something evil. And this was something he had to stop at all costs. She said, a new knowledge must arrive, mankind must awaken to it. And he learnt that all the things he had gone through that we covered on that last episode, from stepping into a bonfire as a two-year-old to watching his wife die in his arms to, you know, falling through roofs and nearly dying multiple times to getting that horrendous experience, horrible rheumatoid arthritis, uh, this was all part of an agreement he had made with her, some kind of promise, some contract he signed with her. Perhaps in a previous life, he's never really told. He's just told he made this promise. And she says, this is your burden. You must bear it. So, as I said uh, on the last show, he basically collapses, uh, walks inside, collapses, falls asleep, completely out of it. And he wakes up. It's Easter morning. This is 2009, 2010. Okay. One or the other. And everything this 
goddess has said to him is pulsing through his head when he wakes up. And he said he felt a profound sense of acceptance that the world was not imploding with the lady on our side. This was now something that he could place his faith in and all he had to do was keep speaking out. He said there would be no way out but through. Now, serendipitously, he receives a call just a few days later from the North Carolina MUFON chapter. And they say- This is after everything he's been through with MUFON. Yeah, well, this again, this isn't the main head MUFON. This is like a little, you know, one of the little groups Mm. associated- with it. And they do the same thing. They're like, look, you've been through the ringer and you were treated so unfairly, but we love your story and we'd love you to speak at a conference in Asheville. Now he feels like this is all meant to be because of his mission from the goddess. So, of course, he accepts. And on stage, as he's introduced, you know, the, all the people there in the auditorium, before telling the story of his encounter at the river, seeing those big orbs and everything, he starts to explain why he's come forward to speak again. And he starts telling the audience about the lady, the lady in white, this goddess. And the crowd doesn't really take it well, because think about it. You've gone to UFO conference. You've signed up to see this guy talk about this amazing UFO encounter. Well, you're missing probably, time. Yeah, expecting nuts and bolts. And not- his son sees these mechanical eyes, red eyes, paralyzing him. And he starts talking about this portal that a bull came out of. <laughs> and then turned into a goddess. Yeah, and this hot goddess lady gave him a little furball. And the whole crowd's like, ooh, what, <laughs> ooh, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> Could you imagine just you hear crickets in the background? Well, be a bit, oh. well, there's murmurs. People are like, what the hell is this guy talking? What is, is he lost his mind? And some people actually start heckling him and telling him to tell the story of the UFOs to stop talking about this lady. But he... He's very adamant. He says, listen, this is important. This lady appeared to me. It was real. She told me to tell you what she said. And then for some reason, something else came out. Like he just blurted something out and he doesn't really know where it came from. He said, there's going to be a 6.8 magnitude earthquake on September the 23rd, 2012 in Baja, California. In New York this fall, the elections will be disrupted. And everyone sits up, what? what is this guy talking about? And he had no idea why he said this. He just said that- Spontaneous. Elections are going to be disrupted and there's going to be this earthquake. And he makes contact with his son at this moment in the auditorium, like his son's in the crowd. And his son's Ryan is like, "Uh, dad, what the hell is going on? So he just picks up the normal story. Like he starts telling the normal story that I told you last week that uh, he had seen these three orbs. He had all this missing time. And the rest of it goes okay. But a few weeks later, Mufon calls again. And they were actually impressed by his talk, despite all this crazy stuff about this goddess. And it's the mention of the goddess that made them put him in touch with Diana Pasulka. So this is how oh, he, I see. he met Diana. She was the author of American Cosmic Space, which came out in 2019, that fantastic book where she was investigating ancient descriptions of the seraphim and generally issues where a lot of old biblical texts and biblical accounts have been translated incorrectly to say angels. Right. And she believes that if if you go back through the, you know, root Hebraic words and all that sort of stuff, there's actually descriptions of fiery beings and fiery clouds but it's just been translated as angels. So, what is she suggesting they are? That they're what demonic, jinn, 
other no, forms of she, entities. She claims that the the phenomenon isn't aliens; it's angels. It's mm. it's what we have called. It's what the ancients called angels. It's the same phenomenon. So yeah, she was a religious studies professor at the University of North Carolina and wanted to get to know Chris and hear his story. And there was this suggestion that they would be working on a project, which I presume is the book of hers that I just mentioned. Uh, MUFON had been in, co- in contact with her and, yeah, sent her a stack of around 2,000 reports of UFO sightings. And she basically said in all her years of studying the Bible, she knew that the popular image of angels was completely at odds with the text and how they actually appeared in the texts. Mm-hmm. And she said of the many descriptions of angels in the Bible, virtually none of them match that typical description we have with the wings and the children's book description. She said of all the modern accounts of these encounters, she said Chris's, down to the very last detail, felt closest to what she believed was the truth. And it was a turning point for her. So the whole meeting with Chris really changed Basulka's perspective and led to the the research that we know her from. And she basically emailed him and said, look, we she believed the beings that he was seeing were, were angels and not aliens. So is that why he's come to this conclusion with this goddess? Yeah, I mean, he's obviously taken on board her perspective and it's it agrees with his thinking. So Yeah, because you have to wonder what was his, you know, perspective yeah. perhaps before he'd consulted with her. Well, of course, as we explained on the last show, he thought it was an alien invasion. Mm. He, he thought these were aliens. Uh, and perhaps that's what they are. But he's convinced that he says on a deeply intuitive level, it all felt like it was from God. And the lady's words, like the goddess that he encountered, it's all about a directive of nonviolence, compassion, even the orbs themselves do, uh, feel like heavenly things. Yeah, Aaron's, I don't trust Aaron's it. rolling his eyes. <laughs> I don't trust it. I understand. Like, it's fine to view this from a religious perspective because possibly that might be an answer for, for some of this phenomena. Perhaps. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I just find it that it feels like in this particular story that he's being uh, manipulated and disarmed, essentially. Well, let's get into that. Let's see the story and then we'll give our, our spin on it. But... He's convinced that this is what's happening. And he says, even with all the instances of him nearly dying in his early years, there had to be more to it than aliens. He feels like there's some divine path to it. Anyway, he he stays close in touch with Diana Pasulka and she eventually puts him in touch with a pair of script writers who want to turn his experience into into a film. Now, he's very wary of the whole MUFON thing, obviously. He's wary of these guys. Yeah. But they seem genuine. They know the phenomenon. Uh, they've already written some Hollywood scripts. Pasulka worked with them on a Hollywood script. Uh, so he trusts her. But before he agrees to do anything further with them, he says, look, I need to wait to see if I get a sign. And if I get a sign from them, then I'll work with you. And he waits a couple of days and Diana's calling them. Does a call trash his house? Yeah, like Diana's calling him saying, did you get a sign? Did anything happen? And he's like, no, nothing's happened. Anyway, that night, he's on his back porch. It's about nine o'clock in the evening. It had been raining all day, so everything's wet and soaked. And he's thinking about these riders, and he hears his wife, Yvonne, suddenly say, Chris, what the hell is wrong with that tree? And about 75 yards behind them, he sees one of their trees in the backyard just erupting in flames. It's just completely engulfed. 
And it's strange because there it wasn't an electrical storm. There was no lightning and it's just been, you know, drizzling all day. Is it biblical? Is it like a burning bush? Yeah, this is what I'm thinking straight away. Is it going to start talking to him next? It's this old uh, northern catalpa tree. Uh, 25 feet of it had fallen away the year before. So it was basically nearly dead. Um, and it's got a 25-foot trunk about the width of a basketball. So it's a pretty big tree. Mm. And they realized that uh, the whole interior of it was just on fire. <laughs> it's just completely lit up. None of them had been outside beforehand. The family hadn't been outside because it was such a miserable day. No one was on the property. The grass was still wet under their shoes. And they just see this weird kind of flame coming out of it. And they're just mystified. Anyway, it eventually dies out. And he's like, this is the sign. So he writes to Diana. He says, tell the scriptwriters I'm in. I got a message from them. That's definitely a sign, all right? So, you can see how everything now has pivoted around this faith he has in the phenomenon. It's it's almost like but, he's not he's not making his own decisions anymore. Everything relies on this connection to these beings. They have to call all the shots. They make the decisions now. It's mm. a really you know important shift in his thinking. Yeah, it feels like there's an element of um, perhaps maybe not being misled, but it's like he's surrendered to the phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, given himself over almost entirely. Um, so, he had his instructions from the lady. He had to keep speaking out. Turns out those electoral disruptions in New York occurred. There was a big storm or something and no one could vote and everything was shut down. That came true. I'm not sure if the um, if the earthquake tr- came true. He never mentions it, so I presume it didn't. But he he notices now also that he's able to film the orbs that appear in his backyard, these what? craft that are showing up. On his phone? Yeah, like they're they're actually allowing him to record them, which he could never do before. Whatever device he used, it would never capture any footage. Mm, yeah, now, you, you hear that. Now it's actually appearing and he's getting very rudimentary, you know, lights in the sky on his phone. Does he include any photographs in the book? No, just photographs of him with like, UFO people, basically. Okay, right. Um, but word gets around about him and his correct prediction about the New York elections. And he ends up getting invited to a, a big conference organized by a businessman named Larry uh, Frisella. And this is a, a this big thing he put on. Larry's a you know very rich guy. And uh, he got all the big names out for this big UFO conference. He had, you know, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin and John Alexander and royalty like Linda Howe. Uh, and he gets flown out to Philadelphia for this weekend. And he does this great presentation. The word gets out. And just like his contract with the goddess, it, it seemed to be being fulfilled. He was telling his story. People were listening. He was getting more popular. And he just thought, you know, the lady must be pleased with what I'm doing. And she must have been pleased because she decided to reveal herself once more to him. And this was in the Easter of 2013. Is in the morning hours of uh, March 31st. And he was woken up by this strange pressure underneath him. And he noticed it because he'd been so, in so much pain from his arthritis. Like every position he was in always hurt. But he wakes up in the middle of the night and the pain's kind of gone. And it's almost like there's a giant hand underneath him. And he realizes he's floating. He opens his eyes and he sees that he's rising up through the top of the house as if some giant hand was lifting him upwards. And it's not like he's out of body and he's floating through the rafters. 
there's actually a portal has been opened, like in his ceiling and then one in the attic. So he can just pass through. And as he's floating through, he looks around, he can see all these boxes in the attic and all his stuff there. Is he out of body? Does he look down to see if he's actually out of body? No, or he's just physically he, being floated up? Physically being lifted up. Hmm. Because I guess they wouldn't need a portal if he's out of body. He would just well, float potentially, through. Well, potentially, I don't know. But he's being floated up through this portal. And he's being drawn into this brilliant bluish white light hovering about 100 feet over the house. And he's, he's not surprised. He's not scared. He's actually looking forward to this experience. Totally conscious as well. He doesn't need any, you know, regression or anything after this. And as he's ascending into this light, the brightness becomes so intense. It almost, he says, seems to invert itself into a dark room, whatever that means. He says, this is the exact same space I was in during the missing time at the river incident. He said, I was standing upright in total darkness and could hear my breath echo around the walls. Just as before, the total silence of the space, he said, gave me the impression that the echoing of my breath demarcated a round room. He said he noticed the walls were no longer the electric bluish white of the orb, but transparent. And he said he found the ability to walk. He could walk around. So essentially, he's in this giant transparent... Fish tank, essentially. Yeah, transport bowl. <laughs> yeah, like a fish tank. And he he's uh, places his hands against this boundary and he can feel himself inside this weird force field, but he can see everything around him. And he, he watches as this weird fishbowl craft starts rising up through the atmosphere and he can suddenly see that they're shooting through an endless expanse of stars. Like he's hit warp drive or something and the universe is just flowing past He's got no idea where they're going uh, and he just has a sense that they're just traveling immeasurable distances. But it's just him in this cube, in this weird ball thing. Anyway, eventually he sees that they're heading towards the atmosphere of a planet. They've reached some location and it's dim daylight and they're descending on this pale evening, going through the atmosphere. He sees no lights, no houses, no roads, no sign of civilization. It looks like some kind of Star Wars desert planet. Oh. Like a complete... Tatooine or something. Yeah, he's going to Tatooine. And this orb is lowering him down and he notices that they're headed towards some kind of canyon, this very deep canyon carved into the land. Before he knows it, the, the orb lands on the sand and it's almost like the orb dissolves. He just suddenly feels his feet on the sand. Like there's no transition. It's just... And he's... He's standing in the desert. And keep in mind, he's still in his pajamas. <laughs> like, he's shoeless on an alien planet. Uh, amazingly, he He'll can... be fine. There's an atmosphere. He can breathe it. And, yeah, he's walking around barefoot in his little pajamas with these huge canyon walls on either side of him. Now, when, he, when the orb kind of pops open like a bubble... Uh, he realizes that there were three beings with him on the craft. They were just invisible. He couldn't see them. And they're identical to the ones we mentioned on the last part where, you know, they're kind of diminutive beings. And I think he said they had they had red eyes, That's right? That's right, yeah. He said their bodies glowed ivory yellow like the moon. And he said, it occurred to me that they must wear a kind of cloak to protect my eyes from their brightness. It's odd that he's describing them as being you know, an ivory yellow because it just so happened that 
last week when I was looking through those uh, Italian reports, I didn't end up including them, but there were a collection of reports of the golds. So not the greys, they were called the golds. And essentially they were grey style beings in physical shape, but their colour was this golden yellow. Yeah, and that's what he's saying. They're they're that colour and they're luminous. Yeah. They're they're glowing. Mm. Uh, it's like an aura coming off them. Well, they glide past him and start moving into the canyon, and he's just standing there bamboozled, right, just thinking, what on earth am I doing? Do, do I need to follow them? And they basically turn back and motion for him to follow. So he starts walking after them, and it feels like they walk for a long time. It's about a mile that they're walking through this canyon. And there's no signs of life. There's no civilization. There's no technology. There's just nothing there. There's just him and these beings, dead silence. But as they turn a corner in the canyon, he sees that the wall ahead is just awash in brilliant white glowing light. And he gets kind of impatient to discover where they're going. And eventually they round the corner and she's there. The lady, he calls her. Ball form or normal form? Normal form. Okay. Yeah, normal form. Beaming. She's the light she's the light source. And the canyon is gleaming around her in this bluish white aura. Her dress is bright white, and he's like, he could hardly look at it because it's so gleaming. And she's seated on a massive stone carved throne, he says. This is giant seat. Is this her like kingdom planet? Like, what is going on with this? And uh all the beings the lead him to her and he's just watching her. She's unspeakably beautiful, just sitting there emanating this powerful aura. She just looks like a goddess. And they approach the front of the throne. The beings bow at her and then turn to walk away. And again, he's just standing there in his (laughs) pajamas. I just find it so funny. Like you're going to meet the queen of the Z7 Zeta <laughs> Sector, <laughs> the queen of a, a billion civilizations, and you're just in, in your PJs. It's all part of the agreement. <laughs> it was all outlined in the agreement. It's fine. And she stands up from the throne, hovers over the, the carved floor beneath it, and she speaks this parable to him in this, you know, like, from Lord of the Rings when Galadriel's speaking, this multi-layered, booming, telepathic, but audible voice. When the red star of Regulus aligns just before dawn in the gaze of the Sphinx, a new knowledge shall come into the world. And he's like, care? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Now, he says he had... Just like, cool. No idea what that meant. But he's tried to figure it out over time. And this is what he's come to understand. He claims that this, when the red star of Regulus aligns just before dawn in the gaze of the Sphinx, a new knowledge shall come into the world. This means that around Easter 2026, there will be an end of the old ways and a beginning of the new. In regards to... Put it in your calendars. April of 2026. Yeah. Put it in. Okay. What season of MU will that be? Oh, I don't, don't even make me think about that. 30-something? <laughs> something like that. Season 34 or something? 34? God, just thinking about it. <laughs> just hurts. He said, uh, I felt overcome with a newfound ability to feel others' pain 
as well as an impulse to help them through it. So, he feels like he's been given powers. He's, he's been activated. And the thoughts and emotions of others, he says, seemed vitally, extraordinarily connected to me. The goddess communicated to me that she could now trust that I was forever committed to sharing what I knew with the world, whatever the cost. He said she wanted the world to know and trusted me to deliver as much of this knowledge as I was meant to. They would help me in the journey and were grateful that I was willing to take on this burden. His story is just, you know, so similar to so many contactee stories. That you have been selected, that you yeah, are important, special, that yeah. you are spreading information. Special mission. We have no way else to do it. You are the only way, so you are the chosen one. I, I feel like these entities, if this is real and he's having these genuine experiences, and I, it, it feels like he is, like he believes that he's had these experiences. Uh, it very much feels like to me that it's just the typical false narrative he's been given. By these beings. Yeah, I mean, if they wanted to uh, spread the message to the world, why would they need him? Yeah. They can just do it themselves. I mean, what's stopping them? Because Is it the prime directive? Ease? No, contact ease are the conduit. That's the only way they can get through. And I don't, I don't know why that is, but it just seems to be they need people to be able to get the knowledge out. But that knowledge is, I don't know if that's part of their agenda. It just, none of it feels like it's being honest. Why doesn't she just start a YouTube channel? <laughs> you know? Or do, like, I don't know, sell a bathwater on OnlyFans or something. There's like, like 600 million people on YouTube. I'm sure she'd get at least 100,000 views. There you go. <laughs> Much easier. She could start They're a plus one membership. Contact D. Start a plus membership. OnlyFans. That's what I mean, yeah. Get her on OnlyFans. Yeah. You just... You know, imagine the blinding a- light when she reveals those puppies. <laughs> Just, But that's actually a really good question, right? If these entities need to have people spread this information, if you're human form, if you can take on human form, because clearly she's a shapeshifter, why doesn't she take on a human form and set up a channel and just spread this information herself? Well, I mean, yeah, this is a question. It's such a fundamental question, and we keep coming back to it over the years, but it really is a good one to ask is, if there is some nefarious group that's spreading lies about the phenomena and it's very detrimental to the future of the human species, if we accept those so-called lies about the negativity of the phenomena, why doesn't the phenomena defend itself? Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Defend your reputation. If you're being attacked and you don't agree with it, show up and prove that it's not true. So... He, uh, after this experience, he wakes up back in his bed Sunday morning, remembers absolutely everything that happened. Her beauty above all else is what was seared into his mind. And, you know, this goes back to something we were talking about on the last show where, you know, you have this understandable idea that he might be being tricked, he might be being hoodwinked, perhaps Mm -hmm. this being isn't uh, exactly what she seems. But remember, if you're in the presence of a... Um, you know, like remember Steve Jobs, people always said he had the ra- reality distortion field. He was so, um, what's the enigmatic. word I'm looking for? He, he was enigmatic. And- he, he was charming. Yeah. He, you fall under the spell of people's charisma. Mm. Now put yourself in the predicament where you're under the, the spell of charisma of some kind of non-human being, right? 
of course, course clearly, of course yes. he's going to think she's a god of course he's going to be enamored with her something someone so beautiful and you know giving off energy and 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 compassion and benevolence that's what he's feeling of course he's going to think she's a god he's simply blown away he said and now he feels like he's got all this support and acknowledgement and approval uh from not only the goddess but also people within the UFO community. Ah, Because he's getting invited to all these conferences and people are listening to him now and he's being acknowledged. See, I mean, I could go even so far as to, to, you know, speculate. Is this a result of, you know, like an MKUltra program or something? Is it that you infiltrate UFO groups through counterculture and subculture and, you know, you're trying to spread a message or knowledge, like make out that it's this big, intergalactic, wonderful thing, but you target an individual, that individual spreads that knowledge and that word, that information out through a particular subgroup, and then that way you've got control of them. Seems all very elaborate. Well, they, <laughs> For what they ends? do. But they do go through these elaborate things. Like, absolutely. For what, do. though? For what ends? Just for psychological warfare. It could just simply be for testing. It could be for honing of those abilities, of those skills. It could be any number of reasons as to why they'll do that. Well, the intelligence agencies are involved later in this story. And we'll get to that in a moment. But only a few days after this experience, he said he found out that the lady had given him the most important gift yet. So he explains that Grant Cameron came to visit, you know, the UFO researcher. Yeah. Uh, he invited Grant over to his property and Grant saw the locations where all this weird stuff had happened to him. Anyway, there's an incident late in Grant's visit where one of Chris's dogs, and they don't know how this happened, but it was severely injured. It just basically ran past his leg and he looked down at his leg and there was blood all over his leg. And they looked closely and the dog had a huge gash in its neck and blood was just going everywhere. It had been attacked? Well, they don't know. The dog had just started running. It had been somewhere and just had run past them and tried to get in the house and it just had blood everywhere. Like its whole fur was covered in blood. And he noticed this deep cut on its neck and it was just gushing in blood. He couldn't stop the bleeding and he was sure that his dog was going to die. But he held his hand on the wound and he claims that he felt the power of the lady come through him. And this is why he mentions Grant Cameron because apparently Cameron witnessed all of this. The cut was instantly healed. So he's become a healer now. Yeah. So this is his understanding is that the lady has given him, or he says somehow the lady had used him as a conduit for healing. It's not his power. He's a conduit for the lady. But this goes, you know, um, in line with what we're only recently talking about with spontaneous healings, people describing being healed by UFOs or interactions with ETs. It's like, it's not to, you know, save a human being's life. It's to maintain their stock. Well, this is just his dog. I know, but is, <laughs> I it, know. is it coming through him to start, you know, like, is he going to function? Because obviously he'll be meeting with other people in the UFO community. Is he now going to function as a way to maintain that stock? Well, is he going to get more followers yeah. of his story because of this? Well, he eventually gets another uh, invitation and this is to a private meeting. This is where NASA gets involved. This was the weekend in June of 2013. The guy who... I think it was the guy who had organized that big UFO conference, invited him out to meet some, you know, rich billionaire friends of his. And this guy had a beautiful cabin in the country and somewhere in Pennsylvania. And it was just an invitation to come and meet these people and talk about the universe. Mm -hmm. And long story short, he says, yeah, there, you know, there were entrepreneurs and billionaires there and, you know, very connected people. But he said they're all dicks. They didn't really believe in the phenomenon. They were kind of nihilistic in general about the universe. 
but there was one guy there and, and reading between the lines, it's almost as if this meeting was set up just for this uh, because he met this guy named Tim Taylor and he found out that Tim had come to this meeting just to meet Chris and Tim had been a veteran for NASA. He'd worked for NASA his whole life, was really interested in Chris's story and he actually asked if he could come to visit the Bledsoe's on their property. And he just simply wanted to help them. Now, I'll send you a, a bio of this guy, Aaron. And uh, while I'm continuing the story, maybe just take a look at this guy's credentials. He's, he seems like the real deal. Okay, let me have Like, a he's a real person. He has obviously worked for NASA. But also, his work for NASA is largely connected with the Department of, of Defense. So, he's worked on more shuttle missions with the Department of Defense than with NASA. So... His name's Tim Taylor. If you click on him from that list, you'll you'll see him. And he's now involved in biotech as well, but we'll get into that. So he visits them in September of that year and just wants to walk around the property and talk about their experiences. And Chris points out, yeah, he's a genuine expert on medical, aerospace, military, and intelligence technology. He's an engineer. He's an inventor. He's got 13 patents to his name. And he's affiliated with a bunch of government agencies officially employed by the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, but the whole family basically stopped around to meet this guy. And he he does this kind of presentation for them. He turned up with a laptop and he sits everyone down and he says, look, this can't leave this room. You can't tell anyone about this. This is, you know, big, big v- spiel on secrecy. Do not reveal this to anyone. And he opens up this presentation on his laptop and it says, for the Bledsoe family only. And there's all these uh, warnings about penalties for sharing all this information. Like you'll face prison, you'll face this, you'll face that. Hang on. And now he's put it in a book? Well, he doesn't reveal what's in the slide. Oh, okay. Right? And he says, of course, I'm not at liberty to share the information in the presentation, but he says, suffice to say that it most likely contained US government-related information dealing with UFOs, unexplained phenomena, and related subjects. He says it was extensive and detailed, leaving very little uncertainty. And he shows it to the entire family, closes the laptop, and reaches into his backpack. And this guy brings out a small piece of metal. It's a silver gray. It's about the size of a postage stamp. And he hands it to, to Chris and says, what do you think about this? And he holds it in his hand. He's like, yeah, I don't know what to think about it. It's, it's weird how light it is. Hardly weighs anything. It's kind of like a piece of aluminium. Tim then reaches into his backpack and again pulls out another container. He takes another piece of metal out of it. This one's similar, but it's matte gray and darker gray looks a little bit wrinkled, almost like aluminium foil. And he shows them that you can crinkle it up and it pops back into shape. Oh, that kind of sounds like the the memory metal so, yeah, this, from Roswell. This is sounding like memory metal. Mm. And while Tim's holding the first piece of metal, he puts the second piece of metal in Tim's, uh, sorry, in, in Chris's left hand. And immediately out of nowhere, he gets this energy jolt surging through him. Chris said his eyes darkened with tunnel vision. It was like he was experiencing G-forces in a fighter jet. He's like, ah, what is this? What is it? And his heart's beating faster and faster. His forearm starts pulsing. And Tim just looks at him and just says, 
Why you? Why you? And before he knew it, Tim had taken the medal out of his hand, quickly placed it back in the container and put it all back in his backpack. And Chris is just staring at the ground, like trying to get his vision back. His heart's going crazy. He's like, what the hell was that? And all this guy will say, this Department of Defense, NASA connected guy working for who knows what, just says, why you? He's like, what do you mean, why me? What just happened to me? What was that stuff? Tim explains that this material had isotopes that came from 50 million light years away. Apparently, these materials and their composition had yet to be understood. How did they know it was 50 million light years? I had no idea. Because that's a pretty big number. They hadn't been made by human hands and nothing like them occurs naturally on Earth. He said that of all the people he had tested with these materials, only two people previously had a reaction. And this confirmed for Tim the truth of Chris's experiences. Now, Chris is like, what that means? I have no idea. And he says, all I know is that he told me my biological reaction was the strongest he had seen. And he said, look, whatever had just happened, it seemed that even Tim didn't understand the full implications. So what is this stuff? Why would he have a reaction to it? Even if it is some exotic metal from an alien craft, why would he react? Why wouldn't other people have any reaction when they hold it? It's Well, it's obviously suggesting that there's some connection and maybe this ties into the whole he made an agreement beforehand, then there might be a genetic link. Maybe it's some type of genetically yeah. activated technology that we don't understand. And this was always the speculation in, in these old stories that, the craft that have been retrieved by, you know, military forces. They couldn't figure out how they're they're flown. They Mm. couldn't figure out how they're controlled until they eventually learned that it's through a telepathic connection. Mm. You know, we've heard that for years. Um, More orbs start showing up. Uh, Eventually, uh, there's this kind of weird side story with Chase uh, Klotsky. And I know we've covered her on the show before, but I can't remember what she did, like a bo- it was a book she did or something. Yeah, the name's familiar. Chase Klotsky. And directly, th- this basically there was this ghost team in the area, okay? So there was a night where Chris was out on his porch and he saw these two giant orbs. And when I say orbs, they're like craft, like flaming ships like he saw on that first night. And they're basically toying with him, going up and down and doing all these movements and they've got concentric circles inside them that are pulsing in this hypnotizing fashion. Oh, that's the same That's the same report that came out of Australia that I was reading today. Yeah, like right. Orbs that people have been seeing, but they were described, there was a guy that was, I think, checking on his cattle and he was out riding in the remote Australian outback or, you know, remote Australian agriculture land. And as he was out there, these orbs came to him. But when they came over the hill, like they were massive, but he said that they had ribs. Oh, yeah. I'm like, what do you mean by ribs? What he meant by ribs is that they had these pulsing circles inside them. That's what he described. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. That's exactly what he says. Circles kind of in this hypnotizing, pulsing matter. So it's almost like you're looking into a tunnel. That's the effect it gives. Yes. Yep. That's interesting. Well, he sees these orbs and then they shoot off in a particular direction, right? And he's like, that's another weird one. Anyway, the next day he gets a call from Chase and Chase starts telling him about this this team of ghost hunters who were in the area looking at this particular property because there'd been reports of strange phenomena there. 
And before she goes on, he basically cuts her off and says, oh, hang on a second, before you say anything, last night I saw two giant orbs and when they sped off, they went exactly into the direction that that property is. And I know this area, that's exactly, they headed in that direction. And she's like, You're, you've got to be kidding me. She says what this team saw was two orange fiery orbs. They were so, they were terrified when they saw them. Validation. So they were out visiting this property. They see these orbs fly over them. Um, and this is a team of experienced ghost hunters with all the equipment and everything. And they've all got guns and they're all prepped and, you know, the usual stuff. Not like a corny TV show. These are serious ghost hunters. And they apparently, after they saw the orbs, they claim that they saw something with two glowing green eyes peek out from behind a tree and stare at them. Oh. Now, what I find amazing about this is without even hesitating, all six of them drew their guns and just unloaded on whatever this creature was. <laughs> like, what if it's a person or something? And, you you know, someone in night vision goggles. Well, obviously, I mean, with this kind of stuff, yeah, I mean, people can be, um, you know, erratic and they can make impulsive decisions. But normally with these sorts of reports, right, there's this kind of inherent understanding of danger. There's an inherent knowing mm. that people get with this kind of stuff. So maybe that's what kicked in. And like when, they knew it wasn't human. When they investigate, they see that there's no trace of this thing. And then all then of them, they're, they're terrified. They go back to their cars. They realize that two hours have gone by that they can't oh. account for. You see, there's other reports like that out there of people firing upon uh, what really are, you know, alien-style beings. It's the only way to describe them. But in those reports, they have, you know, weird uh, distortions or, you know, they become disoriented because there's a flash of some yeah. kind. But the reason why those reports are really cool is because the bullets will stop well before it even gets uh, yeah. near the entity. And the people will go and look and they'll find that there's bullets and the bullets haven't even impacted. Yeah. They've just stopped and they're all just on the ground. Yeah. Well, uh, Chase is is telling Chris about this story and they decide to go out and investigate this location. Uh, they Chase brings along some ex-Navy guy, some kind of submarine navigator, and um, he's really interested. And they, they just do their own little investigation. Now... Long story short, they, they walk into the woods and they, they go to the location where this sighting happened, uh, where they saw this creature. Yeah. And they, from here, they head basically towards Chris's house in that direction and they reach a clearing in the woods. And they're like, okay, yeah, we've seen it, nothing here. Uh, but on the way back, Chris and Chase claim they see these two green eyes again, this set of green eyes, and it quickly disappears. No, they don't see anything else? No, they don't see anything else. The other guy doesn't see it. But they keep walking because they're heading back to the house they're investigating. And after 15 minutes, they wind back up at the clearing they just left from. And they can't figure out So why. they circled around. Yeah. Now, the reason they mentioned the Navy, the ex-Navy guy, is because that was his job. He was a navigator. And there's no way he would have, because he had his compass out the whole time, there's no way they would have gotten lost. They walked in the direction towards the house for 15 minutes, but wound up back at the tree clearing that they'd just been in. Yeah, this is part of the confusion that the phenomenon generates. They it's like, done on purpose. They were like, what the hell's going on? Anyway, they get back to their cars, they drive home, you know, weird, but, you know, what can we do about it? Days later, he gets a call from Chase, and she says, I don't know what happened that night, but... I've checked all our equipment, our watches, our cameras, all our electronics. Everything's out by 12 minutes. 12 minutes? Yeah. Like even the clocks in their cars were 12 minutes off. 
they had lost 12 minutes. And it's that an automatic and time. The distance from the clearing in the forest to the house they're investigating, the distance to walk that is about 12 minutes. So it's they can't figure out what happened. They just lost 12 minutes. <laughs> like they were in another dimension or something for 12 minutes. It's it's just bizarre. Now there's a weird coincidence to this story because Tim is uh, sorry, not, I keep calling him Tim. Chris is explaining this to his um his mother. And his mother's like, oh, yes, I know that property. You know, we used to own that property. Like, that used to be a family property. And it's like generations ago, but apparently that old house that they were investigating, which is basically abandoned now, was owned by Chris's, like, aunt's mother or something like that. I mean, it's Um, a coincidence, but is it also a synchronicity? It's just another thing that... Is it connected like, to yeah, him? Does is it have all, an importance? Were the orbs connected to... It's just... It's well, all, does it follow a family lineage as well? And then this just gets, again, John Keel crazy because Tim Taylor, the, the NASA Department of Defense guy, visits it again. Visits again, And they're out in the backyard. It's a beautiful day. And he wants to show him the tree that caught on fire. Mm. <laughs> this crazy tree. Was it burnt? Well, yeah. I mean, on the inside it was... But then it just recovered. Like, it's it's just very strange. Uh, and he's got photos of it in the book. I'll see if we can put them in the show notes. Anyway, they, they go up to this tree and he ended up getting chase got uh, an- samples analyzed and they tried to get lab results, but everything was inconclusive. Anyway, they arrive at this tree and Tim walks around it and there's that kind of gash in the middle and it's got a hollow section inside. And as they're looking at it, this weird silver metallic snake emerges from the opening of the tree and extends its body and comes out looking directly at Tim. Do you mean like robotic or it's just a silver colour? Like it looks no, organic? it looks like a real snake, but it's not any snake you would see in that area or perhaps anywhere. Like it, it really does look like a silver metal. Right. Uh, and there are no snakes like that, are there? I know there's grey snakes, but not a silver metal. Well, there's probably silvery snakes, but... Let me have a look. He says, we watched its black eyes lock onto him for a few moments. It must have been about two feet long, he said. It had the colour of polished aluminium. Oh, there are kind of silvery kind of snakes like that, but yeah, not not really polished aluminium. Does it look metal? I wouldn't say. I mean, no. I mean, it, it looks like it could be shiny, but definitely not metal. Well, Tim was freaked out, obviously. He took a few steps back and this weird metal snake went back into the tree and and Chris just said, look, having grown up my entire life on this property, I've seen every animal that's here. Like without of exception, you would. Yeah. I've seen all of I've seen all the snakes. You know it. I cuz there's snakes there. He says I've seen them all. I've never seen anything like this and I still haven't. I don't even know where you would find a snake like this. Uh, look, normally if you were just hearing a story in isolation, you would just go, well, maybe it's an albino snake or, or something like that. You it's know. a robo snake. Well, I'm not going to go with robo snake, but <laughs> you're right though. You mentioned John Keel. Like it does fit in with this Keelian kind of high strangeness yeah. that starts getting mixed in with this stuff. It's super weird. So after this, Tim basically takes Chris aside and says, look, I, I need to tell you something, and this is really important. And you need to employ this strategy when you're dealing with these entities. And I know that you think that they're, you know, God, it's a God and it's all heavenly and spiritual, and the lady's here to help you. But it's crucial, he says, that you keep them from getting into your head. He gets it. He get, And the fact that he's connected to NASA and to the aerospace industry 
it suggests to me that he's probably connected with intelligence groups that would yeah, know like exactly I said, he's, what's going on. He's done more missions for the Department of Defense than for NASA. I, I saw what's coming out very soon. I don't have a release date on it yet, though. But uh, Nick Redfern has an update on the Collins Elite coming out. Yeah, right. So I'm really intrigued to see what they... Because that's... Those guys know what's up. Well, that's ultimately <laughs> suggesting that the US military or the US government, uh, you know, certain aspects of it, are aware of some type of interdimensional presence uh, that is demonic. I hope they're just going to start enlisting for the Space Marines. <laughs> so we can just start shooting them out of the sky. That's fine. No issue with that. Uh, so, yeah, Tim's basically saying to Chris, look, they can control your mind. They can get into your head. And we've essentially discovered a technique that can protect you against it. And the technique is this. This is what the aliens don't want you to know. Hang on a second, though. The fact that you've got a guy standing before you and he knows a tech That would suggest to someone that they have studied extensively that, one, the aliens exist, well, two, they've interacted with them, and three, they understand them well enough to have countermeasures but against them. this is the group that Pasulka was talking about. This is what Diana Pasulka uncovered, is that there are these scientists and engineers and very smart people who do not do any of this publicly, but they they are studying this phenomenon, mm-hmm. and they perhaps know more about it than, than anyone else on the planet. Uh, and, and it seems he could be one of these people. Of course, he's, he's worked closely with Diana Pasulka, so this is probably who she's referring to as one of these people who are in this network. So what do you do? Well, the trick is you find a song that's at least four minutes long that you know the lyrics for and you just sing it in your head over and over and over. Really? And apparently this stops you from being manipulated. A song that's longer than four minutes, that seems very specific. That you know every word to, you know it off by heart and you can just keep singing it in your head. As long as you follow the song, as long as you do all the lyrics in your head, you're protected. I need to start looking through my iTunes library. <laughs> so I do this whenever there's like a creepy car salesman trying to sell me something because I just get hypnotized pretty easily. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. Could it be used in other situations? Um, I don't know. The only songs I've memorized over the years are uh, Connie Nakamura and Lady. <laughs> Python. That Python song by Lady. I don't know any other songs. <laughs> and the twerk song by Lady. Was that Python? No, that's Twerk It. That's still in my head from a decade ago. Put it in the show notes. So that's the that he basically took a Led Zeppelin song that was over four minutes because he knew all the words. Um, some more highlights that occur in this period of time. This is around the 2013-2014 period. Uh, he he heals his father of cancer. Uh-oh. Like he prays to the goddess to heal the cancer and then the biopsy comes back and the cancer's fine. It's gone. Um, and as he springs up and says, hallelujah, and the whole family's around, he looks up in between his hands and he can see a tic-tac-shaped UFO in the sky, almost as if it's like, hey, you're welcome. Mm. Uh, and then his father dies uh, like a year later. So it doesn't really heal. Does so, he die of cancer? Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know mm. if that counts. That's very sad. Um, his son... Starts acting very strange. Remember Junior, who had, you know, the horrible trauma of the experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, he starts locking himself in his room, doesn't talk to anyone, just like goes to work in the morning, comes back home, locks his room. No one knows what's going on with him until one night the lady shows up and Chris doesn't actually see it. It's actually, I think, his daughter and her, like his niece or something 
view this lady. They're coming home late at night and they see her leave Chris's house where Junior lives as well. And the lady basically shining light um, in this beautiful robe, sees them and then disappears into the forest. Now, the next day, Junior comes to them. He hasn't spoken to them in, in weeks. He's just been really moody. He comes to them and he's like, I think I need to tell you guys something. I've got a really strange pain on my back. And he lifts up his shirt and they're all like, ah! Because there's this massive lump on his back, like this huge pulsating Radio Shack Walkman. (laughs) Is it like a cyst? Sticking out like it's, yeah, this giant cyst. And immediately they're they're like, holy crap, you've got to go to the hospital right now. They take him to the hospital. The hospital's like, ah! They take him to a bigger hospital. They're like, ah! Eventually... What is uh, it? They realized that he's got this massive kidney infection. And he just, oh. he didn't tell anyone. He was just like, yeah, she'll be right. Don't need to tell anyone. It'll go away. And he nearly died. The hospital said if you brought him, he would have been funny. dead a day later. Um, so Chris is convinced that the visitation of the lady the night before, she had somehow convinced him or told him or, t- you know, subconsciously told him to to let someone know so that he could be healed. Look, at the risk of being unpopular, if he was being channeling her energy and could seal a cut in a dog's neck, why wouldn't she just heal his kidney? Yeah, all valid valid questions. Um, and the, the guy went through the ringer. Like, he was in hospital for two months. Uh, he was hooked up to all sorts of drugs. He, I think he became sterile from the treatment. Like, oh, he wow. recovered, but mm. it really damaged him. Um, and then after this, you know, this is a few months later, he's going out for ice cream with his daughter. And uh, they see these weird fiery orbs when they return. Um, and the whole family sees them. And again, this is, I'm just mentioning this little one because of the way he views it. He says, you know, the lady brought us all together as a family. Because everyone saw these tic-tac-shaped fiery craft in the sky. It brought us all together as a family. And that's thanks to the lady. But is is he obviously referring to that in a positive thing? Yeah. yeah all of this is positive. Remember, the, the book is called UFO of God. This mm. is all very positive, spiritual, wonderful stuff. Um, and that's where he starts describing this weird, like what you were mentioning with this concentric circle yep. inside and, and this pulsing. hypnotizing effect. He said it would morph from a weird cube and then bounce back into a tic-tac shape. Oh, okay. No, I hadn't heard of that. Um and he said, I was reminded of Diana Pasulka's description of the seraphim and how that word has been translated to mean angels. But she says it literally translates as the burning ones, which yeah. is how these craft appear to him. They're, they're like fiery orbs or tic-tac-shaped objects. I was, I was reading um, for today's show, which we might end up moving to the later show, but I was looking into some of the work that Bill Chalker has done with remote Aboriginal communities. And um, back in the 70s and the 80s, you know, they had a, a, a massive increase of these weird uh, glowing orbs showing up across remote properties, right? Yeah, yeah. And their approach to them was that they were actually shapeshifters. Oh, right. And they were changing form. So the fact that, you know, in his particular case, you know, they're changing form into a square and then a tic-tac shape. Uh, this is something which is being reported globally. You know, you have a very different culture on the opposite side of the world mm. reporting something very similar. It is important to note with this whole saga that he's never really seen a classic disc-shaped UFO mm. that hasn't played in at all. 
So the idea that this isn't any kind of nuts and bolts UFO phenomena is still, I think, a reasonable take. The only thing that links it to the other stuff we've spoken about on the show is is the entities. And yeah, he describes it as tic-tac shaped. But I I also feel like he's just throwing that in because tic-tac was mentioned recently. Yeah, right. That's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, he is interacting with light forms, right? He's he's interacting with ball phenomena, you know, balls of light. Yeah, and that is a, bre- a bread and butter, you know, uh, element of the uh, the UFO phenomenon. But it does break away from the nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. where you do have this line kind of drawn in the sand of it being well, you've got all the nuts and bolts researchers, and then the people that started looking at balls of light and those sorts of stuff, they are the ones that started having experiences that were more psychic. Yeah, so right. it sounds like he's on that side. Yeah, right. Well, after this, uh, a few months later, uh, he gets an invitation from Tim to view a rocket launch at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral that fall. Um, The August beforehand, he said a heavy package had come in the mail. It was stamped confidential property of the US government. And he opens it up and there's dozens and dozens of pages to fill out of forms for a security clearance. And so he has to, because Tim wants to show him all these facilities at NASA, he needs an appropriate clearance. He said it took him weeks to fill it all out. It would take months for that. But that's a pretty hardcore security clearance. Well, this is why the whole thing seems fishy because he goes to NASA, he gets a tour. Yeah, he sees some interesting stuff, but nothing out of the ordinary. He just sees the facilities and then he gets to watch the launch and it's really cool and amazing. And yeah, you get to see a rocket launch. Awesome. But it all seems like a bit of a ploy to get him a security clearance or get him vetted for something else. Yeah. It feels like there's something else going on. And even he realizes that because while he's at Cape Canaveral, he pulls Tim aside and says, look, I'm, I'm flattered that you invited me out here, but why do you need me here? Like, what, what's the point of this trip? And this is what Tim says to him. He says, look, we see them but they don't seem to want anything to do with us. He said, for some reason, they like you. They let you see them. They let you experience them. And we need to learn why. So it's almost like he's actually being used. Like by them, by the government. Yeah, well, it's it's almost like this group realizes that they need people like Chris because they can't get access and they desperately want access. Why would they then allow him or give him knowledge on how to defend against them though? Because they understand that they can be controlled, I guess. It's Mm. like they need to have their own assets. Anyway, we have no idea what's going on. Okay, this is where it it takes a total bizarre turn. He gets a call out of the blue from Larry Frisella, that rich businessman who organized that UFO conference. And Frisella uh, calls him out of the blue and says, look, there's a good friends of mine, this is good close family friends, and they've got a young boy, he's 12 years old, his name's Brandon, and he's got this really awful genetic mitochondrial disease, and he's on the way out. Like, he needs help. We've tried everything, every advanced treatment. The family's desperate. And I just thought of you, because he'd heard these stories of him healing his dog from Grant Cameron and all this stuff. So, he's like, you know, would you be able to go and see this boy? And Chris says, look, I I don't know if I can do anything, but sure, I mean, I'd I'd happily try and help. So, he goes out to see this this 12-year-old kid, Brandon. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a lovely kid, you know, very um, kind and, and 
conscientious and uh, in good spirits despite his horrible situation. And basically, Chris says a prayer for him. He holds him and, and says a little prayer and asks him to be healed by God and all this sort of stuff. And he gets a call the next day when he's at his hotel because he gets flown out to Washington for this. And it's the kid's mother. And she's ecstatic because Brandon, this 12-year-old, for the first time in years, has got his appetite back. He's eaten two full plates of food. And this was the problem is that with his disease, he couldn't get the nutrients from food he was eating and he had no appetite. To produce appetite. energy, yeah. And he's now eating and it's it's like a miracle mm. that he's eating. And he said, look, Brandon's parents would become lifelong friends of mine. And just a month later, my whole family received invitations to Brandon's bar mitzvah in October. And so he describes, you know, this incredible uh, invitation. They get flown out there to Washington. They get uh, picked up in a limousine and it's this beautiful venue. Um, And these people are rich and connected. And he said part of the reason he realized he was invited, though, was to meet a friend of the families. And this was a guy named Jim Semivan. Now, without going into all the details, this guy is CIA. How do we know that? He just, just re- he just reveals it. Okay. 20, right. 25 year career as an operations officer, essentially a spy. He's retired now, uh, but he's basically a member of the senior executive service, whatever that means. Okay. Uh, he said Jim's interest in the phenomena wasn't strictly scientific either. Uh, this guy had a personal connection to it. So he's a little bit nervous about meeting this guy. It's like, yeah, this, what's the whole point of this? Like, what is this guy going to believe me? You know, what's what does he actually want? And he has a sit down with this guy before they actually go to the bar mitzvah party. And this guy listens to his story, and he says, "This guy's like, I believe you, because everything you said, it happened to me." That's <laughs> my best CIA voice. <laughs> But basically, he confirms he's a contactee as well. Uh, this is He's had experience with the phenomena for years, and he, read between the lines, he's part of this network that's trying to figure out what's going on, this research network. So, they go to this bar mitzvah, and um, it's this beautiful ballroom underneath the synagogue and spacious, beautiful room, and he says the band's already playing, and... He walks in and there's another CIA guy there. There's uh, Mike Morell, the former deputy director of the CIA. So again, very connected family, very powerful, very rich. And it's, he says it was unbelievable how much fun it was. It, it's just he's never been to a bar mitzvah before. Everyone's just dancing, music's going, everyone was into it. But then all of a sudden he hears screams and shouts. The band stops playing. And there's just chaos and someone's screaming, someone's screaming, doctor, doctor, doctor. Before he knows it, uh, the, the kid's mother grabs him and starts rushing him towards this table that everyone's gathered around. And one of the guests, this old Jewish guy, has just like fallen in his soup. He's like collapsed, you know, slumped on the table. Like old uh, Uncle Eugene or something. It's like carked it in the middle of the bar mitzvah. And everyone's like, doctor, we're going to do something. People are crying. Like he's clearly dead. It's uh, a bar mitzvah. Surely there's a doctor there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be like a hundred doctors in that room, at least. Uh, so, <laughs> basically, Chris goes up to him and not knowing what to do, he just puts his hands on his shoulders and this old old guy's like, Whoa! 
He's, he's suddenly okay. He just like leaps <laughs> he up. Like, clear. Touch the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 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 This old Jew just sits, oh, he's fine. He's totally fine. He's healed him in front of the entire bar mitzvah and everyone's looking at him like he's some kind of miracle healer. And he just basically says to the family, it's like, I, I, I don't even know if I did anything. I just, I just touched him. But he did, said, he did say that he felt that um, kind of feeling Channeling, he, he gets flowing. of energy flowing. Yeah. So it's just this kind of really bizarre scenario. He's brought here to meet this CIA guy and he just happens to heal Uncle but Eugene you at the bar mitzvah. <laughs> do you see everything that's going on here? See all the confusion and the weirdness and the, like all of this elaborate detail that he's being dragged through. Like he's being put into all this. It's like unnecessarily elaborate. Yeah. And it always happens with these people. Okay, it gets weirder after this. So, just on a side note, that young kid, uh, he's now a sophomore in college, totally healed, doesn't have any more problems, so quite miraculous. Mm. Um, He eventually gets in touch with John Alexander, uh, who has a bit of a history with um, the military, and many of you know him as a a UFO commentator and researcher as well. Uh, John Alexander goes out to Chris's property and actually sees a UFO, and he says it's easily in like the top two most incredible moments he's ever seen in his life. This this orb craft appeared before them and then zipped off into the horizon and he could not believe it. It was just incredible. And essentially what, um, what he reveals to him, John Alexander reveals that they're looking for people that have a temporal connection with this phenomenon. What an odd term to use, temporal. Isn't temporal time? time. Yes. What does that mean? So that they're being abducted through time? Yeah, that's what John Alexander says, that Chris has a temporal connection with the phenomenon and a telepathic connection as well. And that's what they're looking for, the group that's investigating this. So after this CIA guy, Jim Semivan, calls or tells Chris um, that there's one thing that this group has come to understand about the phenomena. And it's just as a side note, he mentions to Chris that every single person that's contacted in this fashion is somehow blessed after a span of time. And he said that all Chris has lost, everything he's gone through would be returned. Like everything would be healed and corrected because you got to remember his arthritis is so bad. It's getting to the point in like 2017, 2018 where he can't leave the house anymore, where he can't do speaking engagements because he just can't move. He can't even button up his pants by himself. So he's all gnarled, is he? And, you know, unable to... Yeah, he's just a lot of trouble moving. uh, And now he's learning from the doctors that when you have rheumatoid arthritis, significantly shortens your lifespan yeah, and, and obviously leads to other diseases. Mm. And he's been given all this insane medication. Like he's actually on... Um, steroids? He's probably on steroids, but um, chemotherapy. He's on oh. chemotherapy drugs. Right, okay. Because they're immune regulators. Yeah, so he's on serious stuff just to kind of get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's desperate for healing. And so along comes this CIA guy who says, look, we understand that it takes about 12 years for this blessing to come. And we've seen it with every single person that's been in touch with this phenomena. That's new. I yeah. haven't heard anything like that. How 
surreal. Yeah, it takes apparently 12 years, like clockwork. And then <laughs> there'll be some healing or there'll be good fortune or something just happens. He but, says they're blessed. It, it feels like because we hear with so many of these stories of people's lives being torn apart by these encounters. But then I think about the other side of the coin, if this is what's happening, is it almost like a trial or a test? And if people get past it, then 12 years later, there's some type of reward. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly that idea that they're going through great tribulations to have some kind of reward. But um, anyway, it's 2016 when he's told this. Mm -hmm. And he calculates that it'll be January 2019 when his 12 years ticks over from his first encounter. Yeah. Uh, And he also said, this this CIA guy told him that uh, his case has been looked at by NASA the agency, the FBI, NRO, the Vatican has looked at his case. He even claims that the White House has been briefed about Chris Bledsoe's case. Okay, that's all odd. I mean, <laughs> I, maybe I get the CIA looking at it, perhaps, but why is the FBI looking at it? Why is the White House being briefed on this? I just love that Trump's eating a Big Mac and someone's <laughs> briefing him about the portal and the bull coming out. He's like, it sounds like bullshit. Yeah. I don't buy it for a second. Melania <laughs> well, just steps out of a portal. Yeah, let's, yeah let's, let's, she's like that. Uh, so... He's told that apparently other world leaders had been briefed on his case. But again, this is tying into a larger conspiracy that if there is this network that uh, investigates this stuff, I mean, they, Surely there is. they would have connections. Yeah. Maybe some people would be briefed. Who knows? Uh, eventually, Tom DeLong is brought into this as well. He gets in touch with Chris, Louis Elizondo from To The Stars Academy. I won't go too much into this, but basically, Chris claims that he had retrieved metal from some of these orbs that occasionally he would see that they would be dripping something and oh when he would God. when he would go to the location afterwards there would be metal left over some kind of metal unless he's read an obscure australian report from the 1990s it correlates identically does it like yep with orbs dropping materials and being involved in abduction scenarios I, i'm going to go into it later on but that's precisely this kind of story that was described in the 1990s well he very generously hands this over to tom delong and louis elizondo and what do they find they never he never sees the samples again he's told by elizondo that the materials have now been classified and will not be returned what yeah but it wasn't Seems that the whole point of To The Stars Academy? Weren't they trying to get those samples analysed so that they could publicise the information? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Elizondo's in the military. He's got a military background. So, I don't know. It's just you hand it over, it's gone. Don't hand over your memory metals to Tom DeLong and his crew. But isn't, isn't this just so typical, though, of what we hear with this stuff as well, that every time people collect physical evidence of these things. Mm. They hand it over to the government. They send it to a university for analysis. Every single time, it disappears. It just like it hasn't changed. It's actually really frustrating where it feels like we're we're moving steps ahead. Like everything's kind of changing. You've got the Tic Tac stuff. You've got the UAPs. You've got DeLong, you know, someone from pop culture kind of moving into this field, bringing attention to it. And the sample just is taken away. It's not getting better. It's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. So it gets to that January of 2019 
And it's, he's like, well, this is the day. This is when I'm going to get my blessing. This is the lady's going to come down. She's going to heal my arthritis. And it's really bad now. It's really, really bad. Like he can, he can barely move. It's so bad. And he says he, he goes outside and he waits and he's just begging and his knees ache and then they're burning and he's screaming in pain and nothing happens. Goes back inside to bed. And he thinks to himself, well, you know, there's always Easter coming up. Maybe something will happen then because this is all connected to God. Surely the lady will heal me, he thinks. And something does happen in Easter. He goes outside uh, one evening because he gets that strange kinetic feeling in his mind. And he's got this pond and he basically sits on the edge of the pond. And uh, this this orb appears just above the pine trees on his property. And it seems like it's been waiting for him. It's doing this weird blinking. It's this weird bluish white light and uh, it starts spiraling down in a corkscrew motion, getting closer to the ground and he starts getting this tingly feeling as it gets closer and he gets down on his knees on the edge of this pond and it starts to get closer and he sees that the orb is actually contained within a body and the body is a large tall, majestic figure with broad shoulders. So this isn't the lady anymore. This is the man. The man's showed up with his orb. And the orb's like, yeah, inside his chest cavity and it's floating up and down in this rhythmic fashion. It's like that um, thing out of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with the thing inside the... <laughs> it's Krang! Krang, that's it. <laughs> and then Krang appeared and cured me of all my arthritis. Krang. <laughs> it is like Krang. Uh, so, yeah, Krang comes down and he can tell that the, the man entity is kind of not entirely physical, but, but this, this, in, this orb is just going crazy, like going up and down very rapidly. And it's getting very, very bright. And so he's watching this as it's getting closer and closer and it kind of stops in the pond in front of him. It's like maybe 20 feet away. And so Chris gets out his, um, his camera, well, his iPhone, and he puts it into video mode and he's like, oh, record. And amazingly, the being stays and lets him film. This is incredible. And he's like, this is amazing. This is going to be the greatest footage I've ever seen. Like, you can see the outline of this, this entity with this glowing orb going up and down, these mesmerizing colors that look like they're from another dimension. And he looks down at his timer and he can see that, well, the, at the clock on his phone, and he can see that nearly uh, 10 minutes has passed and it feels like it's only been 60 seconds and he's like, what the hell is going on? And he looks up at the being to make sure it's still there, looks down at his phone. What's the being doing? Just standing there. It's just like it's standing there with this orb giving off this energy and the orb's like pulsing and spinning and doing all this crazy stuff and the orb's like in the being's chest. And then he looks back at his phone again and says, I then notice in my rush to record... I'd neglected to actually start the recording. (laughs) Epic boomer moment. (laughs) The greatest extraterrestrial activity in front of you and you forget to press record. Like one could say, well, look, this is a great story and that's a really good excuse if you're trying to hoax something. But I'm going to go with he's got arthritis. He couldn't press the button properly. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. 
My mum does stuff like this all the time. <laughs> She'll take an amazing photo, but her thumb's always in the lens. Oh, no. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> every time. And, she, you know, you, sometimes it'll look clear, but then you look closely, you can just see, like, the edge of her thumb. Oh. It's like the... Well, this is the thing, though. I mean, he's got this, what would have been an incredible proof of what's going on, but I don't even think he would have been allowed to take that anyway. Well, he finally does press record and basically all the activity <laughs> vanishes, yeah. but you can still see that being still there, but it, it makes itself so dim that it's not going to be caught on the camera. Mm. So all you would see on the video would just be like a little... Something, an artifact or something. A dot of light. Yeah. Anyway, finally, exhaustion overtakes him. The being disappears and he feels completely drained. He wakes up the next morning and he's not healed. He's still got the arthritis, but all these visions flood through his head and he feels like he's been programmed like a computer, he said. He was full of understandings that he didn't remember being told. The messages came through in brief phrases like, we will allow you to film us more and share with witnesses. Share the truth. Difficult times ahead. And he starts getting visions of plague, famine, unrest, wars. And it's just over the horizon. It's getting close. And in addition to Is that telling in April of 2026. Well, in addition to telling the people about the phenomena, he now has to tell them to prepare for what's coming. Now, to do this, he starts going on podcasts, going on radio, doing more conferences, getting the word out, just trying to do something, even though he's, you know, in so much pain and can barely move, he just tries and tries and tries. And he's actually uh, terrified as well because he then learns that there's this thing called the coronavirus he starts hearing about. And he's scared because he's down to 150 pounds. He's on all these immunosuppressant drugs. Oh, yeah. If he got that, he was probably going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And he's been on them for six and a half years and he's fragile. Mm. So he books in with his doctor and his doctor says, eh, maybe we should get you off the immunosuppressants and the prednisone. Oh, the prednisone is a steroid. Right. So he goes off the drugs and this is weird. He says over the months that come, over the weeks... He starts feeling better. He notices that his hands aren't swollen anymore. He notices that his symptoms are gone. He can move around. He doesn't need to walk without a, with a cane. The aches are gone. And eventually, he finds himself free of pain and suffering. He had more energy, can play a, a more active part in his family life and get out and get the word out. And he was sure that it was the praying and the lady that had saved him. And I'm like, dude, you went off your shit medication. Yeah, yeah. You got off the pharma train yeah. and you healed your body. poisoning you. Yeah. Let your body heal. It's not the lady. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah, you're taking massive amounts of immunosuppressive drugs. Of course, you're going to feel terrible. You're going yeah. to have drug interactions. You're going to have a whole heap of complications going on. Six years on the pharma dose every day. Of course, you're going to get better when you stop taking it. And he, that's what happened. He healed. Uh, yeah, so it's funny going off the chemo drugs <laughs> makes you feel better. Uh, of course it would. Eventually, he's taken to a secret study at the Monroe Institute. As in Robert Monroe. Yep. They're hooking him up to uh, EEG machines in Joe McMonagall's old remote viewing pod. And they do a similar, exp like a remote viewing experiment where they give him sealed boxes um, 
with things inside them or they give him two of them and he's meant to picture in his mind what's inside the box. The first one they give him, he sees in his mind like maybe a postage stamp or something, like nothing interesting. The second box they give him, he sees this bright blue flash in his mind and he feels like whatever's in the box is alive. Like it's a weird glowing insect in there or something. There's something alive in there. Anyway, after the experiment, they come up to him and they tell him that the they they had just learned as well because it was double blind. But yeah. the, the box he'd been the second box he'd been given was sent to them by uh, Hal Putoff. And what was in it from the SRI Institute, yeah, yeah, yeah. responsible for all the remote viewing? Mm. Apparently, it was metamaterial, material from a retrieved saucer crash. And he saw it as some type of did you say glowing insect? He got the sense that it was alive. And the researcher said that was amazing because, you know, I've been told this story by Hal and Hal said he's done, he's tested this material with Yuri Geller. And again, double blind study, apparently this material was given to Hal. He got it through the chain of custody from Werner von Braun, the old uh, rocket guy. And um, Yuri, when he tested on it, he described um, seeing something he'd never experienced before he said it felt like it was alive. He felt like the material was breathing. It, was, it wasn't a piece of metal. It was like a living being. But it's just like this weird piece of metal. And then the two of them are reporting. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch, though, when you think about it, as you were describing there before, Ben, that the, the technology allegedly recovered is telepathic, like telepathically controlled. Well, then it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think that it could be living. So, that yeah, there's all this crazy stuff going on. He's connected with all these people now. He's doing all this research. And it's an ongoing story because his conclusion is a little bit flat. He basically says, look, the, the last 16 years have been a tremendous test of my faith, but does the story end here? It doesn't. It continues with you. And his whole message at the end is that you need to humble yourself before the heavens, go outside and look up and say, I'm here. And then the universe will connect with you. You just got to say, I'm here and the phenomena will reach out to no, you. No, do not. <laughs> no, thanks. Do not do that. I'll stay inside, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> do not do that. There's an immense danger in doing that. So, th- it kind of peters out on this very, you know, lukewarm message of, it's all wonderful and you've just got to connect. Isn't it weird though how, you know, again, from a modern perspective, like he's a modern day contactee, he's not an abductee, he's a contactee, but we still end up in the same place as what contactees did 60 years ago. Yeah, look, my hunch with all of this, and I know that there's all this indication that there's very serious connected people who are investigating this, trying to get answers. My hunch is that, the whatever's the force behind this lady, it seems that its goal is to just get more popular, have more people want to learn, interact from, with it, interact with it, give it energy. That's it feels why like we, it's we know why it's harvesting energy. It feels like it's seeking out mm-hmm. more souls to tap into. That's exactly what it's doing. And you know, it could very easily be. I don't know this for sure, but this is a gut feeling. It could very easily be that this entire. Um, projection of holiness is just a facade yes well my my opinion has has changed on this and i realized like i was thinking recently and i've asked this question why now why is the u.s government so readily coming forward with this information why is in previously every single news outlet used to push back and ridicule and do x-files sound effects and make fun of anyone describing anything remotely ufological 
And now all of a sudden it's like hitting the I, I realize why, right? Because the phenomenon needs human energy, I suppose, or yeah. it, ne- it needs to interact with it, right? It's finally gotten through to where it needs to get through. And now the entire thing is pivoted yeah, to this bring is, more people in. This is why I'm excited to see if Nick Redfern has been able to dig any deeper into mm. the existence of the Collins elite, because they seem to have perhaps stumbled across this same conclusion. The facade that these beings were presenting themselves as. Yeah, that it's not necessarily as it seems. Um and after going through this whole story, like, I've got to tell you about the the opening chapter because it doesn't make any sense until you've completed the book. Like it is complete madness at the start of the the book. Oh, really? Right? Uh, he basically saves the Pope from assassination. <laughs> And you're just reading it. I almost gave up. Like, I was just, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what the point of this is. And I just kept going and then the story got awesome. But the whole first opening is, it doesn't make any sense. He literally saves the Pope from assassination. What, by jumping in front of him in a, in for a flying bullet? So, the, the opening scene is he's standing in front of that tree, the burning tree. And of course, when you're reading this, you, just, you don't know about the tree. You don't know what this is. And he's standing in the burn in front of the burning tree, holding an EVP machine with a team of ghost investigators next to him, and they're hot, they're trying to get an EVP out of the burning tree. And as they're standing there, they hear this voice on the wind just go, "Jason, Jason," and they all look around, and no one said it the voice has come from inside the tree. And they're like, who is Jason? And it turns out that one of the investigators that's there, his son was named Jason and he had just passed away from a heroin overdose like uh, very recently. And they look over and this investigator's like got tears in his eyes and everyone heard the word Jason. Um, And so they keep going uh, and essentially, they're asking questions out loud, like, you know, they do on ghost yeah. investigations. Yeah. And as they're asking questions, eventually, this voice emerges from the burning tree again. And it says, Pulp, danger. Heads up, danger, Pope. Warn, Pope. <laughs> and again, they're shocked, like, what's going on? Where's this voice coming from? Is someone saying this? No, the voice is coming from the tree. And one of the investigators just asks the tree, like, okay, where's the danger coming from? Philadelphia. He said, whoever or whatever was speaking to us had an urgent message and given its willingness to bring Jason into the picture, seemed to be going to great lengths to get our attention. So immediately, Chris steps away and starts texting uh, Larry Frisella, that rich businessman. Uh, And Larry was connected. Larry um, said, I'll call you back and started calling his, you know, rich billionaire, CIA, government, whoever friends. And it turned out the Pope was due to visit Philadelphia in just a week's time. And as Larry's on the phone, they start asking the speaking tree more questions. And then the tree, while he's on the speakerphone, the tree's like, Congress hit. And immediately Larry's like, okay, you got to get to Pennsylvania now. We've got a serious situation going on. So this is why the Vatican was looking at his story because he saved the life of the Pope, allegedly. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, when you're reading this, you're like, who are these people? What's going on? I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's fine in hindsight uh, at the beginning. And finally, they asked the voice, uh, the, the tree, if Larry was doing the right thing in terms of getting involved. And the tree says, help. Help, Chris, the Pope. We need him. We need him. So on Monday, he books plane tickets with his wife. They arrive in Pennsylvania to see Larry. A limo picks them up, blah, blah, blah. He's very rich. We don't know this guy when we're reading the story. Is there going to be assassination of the Pope on Philadelphia in Philadelphia on Saturday? What's going on? Larry starts getting his connections in order. He calls Colonel John B. Alexander. He calls his connections in the military. They call their connections in the FBI. Eventually, we learn that they start bringing in people to um, figure out a security plan based on the talking tree for the Pope's visit in Philadelphia. Where's he going to be? When's the attack going to come? Eventually, uh, John Alexander makes a phone call and calls Joseph McMonagall and asks asks him to remote view the Pope's visit and there's something that's going to happen. Joe does that. Meanwhile, he asks Chris to try and just, you know, picture in his mind's eye what might happen. Immediately, Chris gets a vision of a bridge. Joe McMonagall calls back and says, I got a, a vision of a bridge. What the hell is going on? It turns out that there's a bridge that the Pope's going to be on during his itinerary that's near some Congress building. <laughs> I don't know all the details. It's the Ben Franklin Bridge. And now that they have the information, they're going to call their connections in the CIA to tighten security and make sure the Pope is safe. And it turns out federal, federal prosecutors ended up indicting a local man for a plot to assassinate the Pope near Ben Franklin Bridge. All right, looking this up. Look it up. Because I didn't look it up because I had no idea what was going on. (laughs) He stopped the Pope from getting assassinated by using the talking tree in his backyard. I'm not finding anything yet. I'm not uh, seeing any. (laughs) Maybe it was so covert they didn't want to embarrass the Pope. It never made the news. There's one from 2010. There was one from 1579. (laughs) (laughs) What did you Google? Just plot to assassinate Pope. Man arrested for Pope plot um, Philadelphia. I'll see what comes up. Let's have a look. New Jersey teen pleads guilty in foiled plot to kill the Pope. This was back in 2015. It's It's real. Santos Colon admitted on a, in a federal court in Camden, New Jersey, that he attempted to conspire with a sniper rifle to shoot the Pope during his visit in Philadelphia and set off explosive devices in the surrounding area. All right, we'll put it in the show notes. Boom. And that is how Chris Bledsoe and the lady, the UFO <laughs> goddess, saved the Pope. And it would totally make sense. Now that I've read the entire book, it all makes sense. Because <laughs> that it should have been at the end. It's the UFO of God. And obviously you want to save the Pope. 
it should have been saved for the end. I that sh- would have been the absolute climax. Well, that's why I did it at the end because yeah. it didn't make any sense <laughs> at all. I was ready to throw the book in the bin and go, what is this nonsense? What is this talking tree? Like, he just opens the book with a freaking talking tree in his backyard that's t- saying you're going to save the Pope. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Anyway, great book, great story. Yeah, it is a great book. Uh, pick it up, The UFO of God, The Extraordinary True Story of Chris Bledsoe. Highly recommended. There's a ton of stuff that I obviously skipped over that I couldn't fit in, but uh, it's a really fantastic story. Wish him the best, and uh, I hope these researchers, this secret network of scientists, is uh, getting closer to figuring out what's going on. Because I, well, I not- think they know what's going on, but it's about getting that information out, and I don't think that's going to be forthcoming. Yeah. I'm not convinced that they're angels. No. No, no, no. There's something very dark about them. Very dark. Yes. And what better way to masquerade as an angel when you're exactly the opposite? Mm. That's a wrap for this show. Um, I'm not going to apologize for doing the whole show because now we've got some awesome stuff saved for the next episode. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I managed to, uh, through, because in our new office, I can actually focus. Oh, isn't it great? It's so love great. the new office. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's quiet. It's really quiet. So I managed to find these obscure, like early 1990s uh, reports, ufological reports from a, a bunch of Australian researchers that we've just never looked at before because mm. they're so obscure. So we're going to go into that. Uh, on 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 Friday, and uh, yeah, it's it's going to be unusual stuff. Have a great least. have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for being on Plus, and we'll catch you for the next one. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>